Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and today we've got a potentially, well, no, she will be fascinating guest on the show. We've got Dr. Kate Gould, who is a clinical neuropsychologist and research fellow at Monash University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kate. Thanks so much, Amelia. Great to be here. Awesome. I'm hoping you can start by unpacking a little bit about, there's a, there's a lot of title going on there. What is your job? What do you do? Well, it is it is a bit of a mouthful and uh, makes for a long voicemail message. <laughs> um, in essence, I'm a a, neuro, a clinical neuropsychologist, so that means I am a specialist type of psychologist with an interest in the brain and particularly when things go wrong in the brain. So my area of interest is in acquired brain injury. So that could be from a car accident that causes a traumatic brain injury or a stroke or a brain tumour. And in neuropsychology, we're really interested in the relationship between brain and behaviour and how that affects mood and thinking and everyday functioning. So many neuropsychologists work within hospitals or other settings where they're focused on the assessment and diagnosis of different brain conditions and how that affects function. I'm in particular interested in rehabilitation, so helping people who have experienced a brain injury with uh, getting back to their life and, and helping them manage or improve difficulties they experience with their thinking, their emotions and their behaviour. So that's one part of what a neuropsychologist is in a nutshell. Um, The other part of my job is as a research fellow. So that means that within my role at Monash University, I research the conditions and treatments for brain um, behaviour and emotional issues in people with, with acquired brain injuries. So that involves me running studies, um, looking for grants, uh, supervising students, lecturing students, and a whole range of different different things. But they really overlap with the same topic and area of interest for me around rehabilitation of people with acquired brain injuries. It sounds fascinating. I just want to check that I'm understanding because traditionally I would have thought of psychologists as more focused on the mind as opposed to the physical structures of the brain whereas it sort of sounds like you're working with both the physical structure and sort of like the mind stuff. So certainly having an understanding of the structures of the brain that's been affected is super important and way back when neuropsychology started it was before the time of brain scans being invented. So neuropsychologists were heavily involved with actually trying to pinpoint areas of damage through conducting tests that were related to specific um, activities linked to structures in the brain. But now that uh, we have brain scans and they are improving with their accuracy and information they tell us through things like MRI scans, um, it's less so about trying to pinpoint that function but more about using our understanding of what's been affected in the brain 
to link that with how that impacts the person in their everyday life. So what does it mean if you have an injury to the temporal lobe that is responsible for learning, memory, language? What does that mean for the person's ability to communicate with their family in their workplace? How do they remember things? So if I'm I'm working with a a man with a, a stroke and he has memory problems and he's a furniture removalist, he struggles with um, when he's asked to go into a house and get a couple of items um, and bring them back to the truck, he can only remember two of the items rather than the three he's told. So I work with him to, to figure out, you know, how is he going to be able to compensate for those memory difficulties? But being a psychologist, I'm also involved in, um, you know, the counselling aspects of well, as well. You know, how does it feel to have had a stroke and to have memory problems? How do you adjust and cope with that? Problems with anxiety and depression in particular are very common after brain injury. So it's really important that we not only understand how often they're happening and um, who they're happening to, but can provide more tailored treatments to people who have anxiety and depression, but also have problems with their thinking and reasoning that may, may mean that traditional therapies uh, are not going to hit the mark for them. So it sounds like there's a lot of problem solving involved in this particular way of yeah this job. Yeah, that's what I really love about it is that you need to sort of understand things very analytically, um, but also there's it's really important to be very creative in the way you're, you're thinking about people and, and looking at the big picture and the very detailed level as well. And that can be really helpful for people, I think, to sort of um, have have some support in seeing um you know, the, the broader implications or the broader supports that are out there for someone who's going through a brain injury that is just life-changing on so many different levels. And their understanding of that and their family's understanding of that really changes from the early days of when people are really just focused on surviving an injury to the adjustments about um, when people are coming home, their expectations around returning to work, the changes in their relationships and family dynamics and all the way to the very long term when people, um, you know, sort of have very well established understanding of their issues um, but are still trying to, you know, create a better life for themselves um, and and living with ongoing challenges. I imagine it would be particularly challenging because I'm assuming in, in the majority of these cases people were healthy beforehand and therefore would have they'd be very clear on how things have changed. Like obviously not in all cases, but yeah, they'd be aware that they had lost or cha- uh, yeah, changed something. Well, it really varies. So in, in some situations, people have had their injury as, you know, as babies or children. And so there isn't a lot of, uh, you know, awareness of what things were like beforehand because they hadn't really had a chance. Some people are very aware of the differences and that can be quite challenging. And in other cases, because of damage, particularly to the front parts of the brain that are involved with, you know, our judgment and our introspection, many people, particularly with with more severe frontal injuries, actually have very poor awareness of their changes and their difficulties. 
so that that you know needs to be um, handled really sensitively with the person and their family um, who might be sort of desperate to you know really sort of put in like bold letters to the person like you have these impairments um, but you know that can obviously be upsetting for the person if they're not ready to hear it or they don't believe it um, so it's what's I guess important to know when you work with people with brain injuries if you've met one person with brain injury you've met one person with brain injury and everyone is so different because we're all different people to start with everyone's injuries are different um, everyone's brains are different and everyone's support and situation is different as well so it's so important to I guess yeah think creatively and have that problem solving but really be um, aware that that person in front of you is a a unique individual who is going to have unique needs and and need need their own sort of tailored approach to how they're supported and understood and that that I find challenging and and really uh, rewarding about this work. Well it'll be especially challenging because as humans we love doing pattern recognition and putting things into boxes of I've seen this before therefore this happens Um, and obviously you can't do that because of all the things like yeah. Yeah and I mean certainly there are sort of typical patterns and typical profiles and it's important that we know that so for example in traumatic brain injury just because of the way the brain is sort of supported within the skull and the way that car accidents tend to happen we see a lot of frontal and temporal injuries so along with that you are going to see a very common pattern of problems with thinking speed and attention problems with memory and new learning um, problems with high level thinking skills and so we we know what we're broadly likely to see but then you've got to look at the individual person and sort of include what we find on the testing that we do but also listen to the people in their life and themselves about what's actually going on for them and how it affects their life because for example someone who has some you know sort of subtle changes with their language but is a furniture removalist might not notice that as an issue at all whereas someone who has subtle changes with their language and is a university lecturer is going to find that really debilitating so you know it's putting putting all those pieces together and um yeah making it work for that for that person it sounds really interesting and super challenging yeah it's all of those things absolutely well the best things are i reckon exactly so with everyone obviously being unique I'll ask a possibly silly question but what does an average day look like yeah it's not a it's not a silly question and it's one I kind of um, I'm quite aware that every day for me looks just completely different um, particularly because half my time is spent in research and half my time is spent doing clinical work Um, within a clinical day before COVID, I was driving out to people's homes to to provide in-home or community-based um, support. And I loved that work, you know, really being able to sort of enter into people's homes and be able to help them with their, their challenges, just, you know, one step forward each time. So, you know, be going to people's homes or support accommodation or meeting with teens and, you know, also spending time, it can 
communicating with teams and funding agencies, writing reports, writing case notes. So that just the mix of that is going to look very different um, and, and doing some assessments as well. Um, and then on research days, being an academic, I guess I'd be doing things that are similar to other people in academic life. So, you know, um, writing ethics applications, um, supervising students, writing journal articles, going to conferences and presenting at conferences um, and actually then <laughs> hopefully having time to run the projects that I'm, I'm doing as well. So it's a real mix. It's a very big mix. Do you find that the things that you're researching, do you are you then able to apply them in the field? Yeah, absolutely. I am very lucky to work um, where I do under the um, guidance of Professor Jenny Ponsford in the Monash Epworth Rehabilitation Research Centre, and I get there. I get to do really clinical research, so I get to bring in my clinical skills and use that in a research context. So, for example running an anger management group with people with brain injury. Uh, For the last um, five years, we've been evaluating a positive behaviour support approach for challenging behaviours after brain injury. So I've been providing um, and designing the kind of treatment approach as part of that. Also running a a project which is actually co-led with people with lived experience of brain injury together we are working on trying to um, understand and um, help people with brain injury avoid getting scammed online so that's another opportunity where I'm actually sort of bridging the the roles I have between providing clinical support to people to actually bringing them across to help me with the projects that I'm, I'm doing in the research sector now. That's fantastic. That's such important work to be done. Yeah, it's a real passion of mine to, I guess, yeah, not not see people with with conditions like brain injury as other, but that we're all we're all sort of human beings in this world trying to figure it out together. And I bring in my knowledge and my experience, but that isn't able to ever replace the people who have that lived experience and that lived expertise as well. So I, I really am trying to wherever I can when I'm whether that's in the research projects I'm doing or whether I'm giving lectures to university students to bring alongside um, with me people with that lived experience to um, help the new generation of researchers and clinicians sort of see that uh, how powerful it is to have that partnership uh, with the people that we support. It's just yeah it's incredibly valuable. Thank you. Are you able to talk a little bit about the the positive behaviour support approach? I'm quite curious. Sure. Um, So the positive behaviour support approach for working with people with um, challenging behaviours is an approach that has been used for many decades, um, particularly originating in the learning disability and, for example, uh, children with um, autism spectrum issues and behaviour issues and then in the last 20 or 30 years there's been work by American um, therapists Mark Ilvesaka and Tim Feeney to actually apply that approach to people with acquired brain injury and um, they've had a lot of success in running programs in, in New York State um, and across America 
and they've been visiting Australia to teach us about this approach. And our trial is now has has just finished an evaluation of that approach. And the idea behind it is that rather than when behaviour issues uh, occur, and that those are things like when somebody is maybe verbally or physically aggressive, when they're frustrated, they're they're acting out, they might be yelling, swearing, hitting, punching, grabbing, could be um, sexually inappropriate behaviour if they're impulsive all the way to the other side of being just really struggling to initiate and needing prompts to do everyday things. Um, all of those can present as challenging behaviours if within their sort of social context they are um, causing problems for the person or the people around them to, to sort of be safe and be able to engage in sort of social community activities. So rather than a kind of punitive approach or an approach that's very focused on consequences like rewarding good behavior and you know discouraging bad behavior a positive behavior support approach is is really interested in looking at trying to improve the factors that um, occur before the behavior to improve um, and the frequency of the behaviors that are more desirable and to sort of reduce any of the triggers or the other kind of factors going on that could be leading the person to use those sort of challenging behaviours to get their needs met. So giving them skills to get their needs met in other ways. Our particular kind of flavour of positive behaviour support is really focused on helping people to improve their quality of life and then as a sort of secondary focus to self-regulate their behaviour. So we kind of look more broadly than just focusing on the intricacies of when the behavior is occurring but thinking about what what would make this person's life better and why don't we ask them so it's a really humanistic approach um, filled with a lot of respect and being um, really sort of seeing the person as and the people in their in their um, support network as equals bringing all of our different expertise and experience together and trying to help the person Um, yeah have a better life and along the way addressing the issues that have been getting in the way including their behavior but in a contextualized way yeah I like it because it's it means you're approaching the problem holistically rather than just like picking out one element of a person's existence and focusing in on that exactly that's yeah that's exactly exactly you know why I like it and the people that we're teaching it to seem to you know it really resonates with them and their values so I think that makes it really powerful and and it's not a specific therapy it's more of a a framework it's more of a way of working with someone and then you can kind of insert the specific therapy approaches that you you like to use within that so it's very flexible that's really cool thank you for sharing because I think that same concept could apply to many different issues (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's a sort of approach where you end up using it in your everyday life and and helping you sort of, yeah, apply it to all sorts of different situations. So there's a lot going on. What are some of the the skills that you need to be able to do your job well? 
I guess multitasking <laughs> um, and time <laughs> management is really important. There's there's lots on the go. But I have to say, though, that not everyone ends up in this pathway of trying to do both clinical and research work. The majority of people would pick one path and even that is plenty and is, is an exciting, challenging job to have. Um, for me, I think also patience is really important that, um, you know, particularly working in brain injury rehabilitation you know the sort of changes and the timeline of changes can be quite long term so I think being able to spend time developing positive therapeutic relationships with people and helping them you know achieve the things that they want it's it's going to happen on a much slower time frame than for someone who's never experienced a brain injury that's that's my sense of things I think having a real sort of passion for the work is super important because it's hard at times, like any job can be. And so I think when you have passion, that can really help you yeah, stay the course. They all make a lot of sense. I'm also wondering if there's a skill in not prejudging people. Yeah, so absolutely not being judgmental, treating people with respect and dignity is is very important. Um, in in my clinical work but I think you know broadly gosh that's something we should all aspire to be living in line with um, just treating people um, with giving them the benefit of the doubt taking time to know them and and not being judgmental is something that I think is really important in developing a, a solid relationship where you can actually do the hard work together and that can include challenging them and do it having hard conversations and you need to develop that trusting relationship first and you can't do that if you're judging them or if they feel that they will be judged if they you know haven't done you know what what they thought that they would do or you talked about doing sounds like you're learning a lot of skills through work that are very useful life skills yeah absolutely and I have to say because it's Obviously, it's a number of years to study to get to this point. Um, my biggest fear was that I would spend all these years at university and then uh, not want to continue as a neuropsychologist in the field. But luckily, that has not happened. Far from it. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that when you're in a, in a role like this where you do need to be very flexible and, and have problem-solving skills and be patient and um, treat people with, you know, really strong deep respect that those are transferable to other other fields too how have you ended up in these jobs what was your path like let's say from high school to where you are now uh, that's a great question and one that I, I recognize how lucky I am to have known what I've wanted to do for a really long time so my interest firstly started off with psychology and that came about because I noticed all the boys at school used to spend a lot of time talking to me about their girlfriend problems. And one of them said to me that, I, that they thought I was quite good at it and I, I should consider being a, a counsellor or a psychologist. And I thought that was a good idea. And then I was lucky enough that at my school, it was a very small school, but we had Monash University actually come and do a kind of a study fair where they spoke about the different courses that were on offer. And at that time, they had a, a relatively new program that they were offering, and it was a Bachelor of Behavioural Neuroscience 
and so I, I spoke to the person at the um, the desk about what the course was and I just thought, gosh, if I'm going to learn about psychology and how to be a psychologist, surely it would make sense for me to also learn about the brain and neuroscience. So I went straight from um, school where uh, I was actually already doing first-year university psychology in year 12. And so then I went on to to do the Bachelor of Behavioural Neuroscience. And within that program, which I really loved, we got to do neuroanatomy. So we spent time with human brains and, you know, holding them and, and learning the different parts of them, which I found really exciting and I really oh, like actual human brains. Yeah, actual ones. Yeah, so kind of gory at the start, but then you get really used to it, and um, it's just a you know a real, um, I guess, fantastic opportunity to be able to learn like that from people who generously donate um, their their bodies for for science and research and teaching. And from there, I did honors in psychology. And um, throughout, I guess, my undergraduate, they, they often spoke about pursuing a career uh, either in clinical psychology or in neuropsychology, which were the two clinical programs offered at Monash. And so I spent quite a bit of time sort of trying to learn about what those different career pathways would look like. And I just, you know, was really drawn to, yeah, the, the, I guess the brain and helping people who were impacted by brain injury and that's how I kind of took the path down neuropsychology but I really ended up in brain injury rehabilitation because of um, the work I was getting to do and this this the projects I was doing with with um, Jenny Ponsford so who's who's a, a world leader in, in the field um, and provided me with yeah a lot of opportunities to to do this kind of clinical research Fantastic. I'm always personally jealous of people who, who knew what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I love how that started. <laughs> like, Yeah, <laughs> just one comment from a, you know, a boy at school, and it set me off down this pathway. And I think also, I was very lucky to have some am- amazing psychology teachers at school who, you know, all, all of those things together just make it a very fascinating pathway. But certainly something that I think, many people can get put off by psychology as in undergrad it's very theoretical it's very much focused on research and ethics and statistics and it's really only as you get further down the pathway that you get to actually do the kind of juicy clinical work where you're 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 working with clients and doing what I think probably many people imagine psychology involves in their early stage and might be a bit disappointed that they don't get to do that clinical work early on but I think it's really important to get those foundations before you kind of um, get to work with real people who are experiencing you know significant issues. Do you want to touch quickly just on the difference between psychology and psychiatry? Sure Amelia so I guess it's a very kind of common question and I guess in a nutshell someone who's a psychiatrist is a specialist kind of um, medically trained doctor whereas I haven't done any medical training. A neuropsychologist is a someone who's done further training and, and in a specialisation of psychology without that medical background. Yeah, so they're very different things. They're different, but we often work together and we work in a complementary way. 
So um, for, for the patients I work with who have acquired brain injury, and many of them will experience mood issues, I'll often um, join in on their session with a psychiatrist who is reviewing their mental health needs and particularly interested in their medication management around their mood. Um, and whereas I, I am not able to prescribe medication, but I can um, help the person, usually I would see them much more often than a psychiatrist would. Was there anything along this journey uh, that kind of really sparked the interest in the acquired brain injuries specifically? Well, I guess um, in hindsight, I realised that I'd had um, a family member who, when I was one year old, um, he was in a car accident with his wife and who sadly passed away. And he had a one-year-old son who we kind of grew up as friends together with. So I was able to reflect that um, sort of noticing the difficulties he faced, um, you know, with his speech, with with a limp, with some of the challenges he faced. I think that that always sort of drew an interest in me um, and to sort of understanding his condition. Um, I think there hasn't necessarily been, you know, a lot of singular moments along the way. I think this sort of pathway, this in terms of both learning and career, which sort of blend together, is just filled with every day is an opportunity to learn. And um, it's it's sort of fascinating work. And I get to work with great people in our research group, my clients are, you know, lovely people that I really enjoy working with, our research participants, they're amazing people who have gone through so much and yet still volunteer to help us with our studies. So it's, yeah, it's just sort of the gestalt, the kind of all of it put together really that I realise I'm, I'm very lucky to have been, you know, able to do something that I'm so, so passionate about really. And to do that and to know you're making a difference as well. Yeah, and I think that's also a part of the work that we're doing is that sometimes it's hard to, uh, I guess, measure and sort of see the difference, but it's it's really important part of sort of modern practice is that you are we are always trying to make sure that we are making that difference um, with everything that we're doing or we need to change it up and do something different. What is like the coolest part of your job? The best feeling I get um pre-COVID and it's a little bit harder at the moment is uh, I love having um, been out for the day and seen you know a few people might be three or four people in their homes and sort of just coming back at the end of the day and just sort of reflecting of like I've been able to make a difference to those people in you know might just be a small way it might just be that they felt listened to and understood and felt somebody got them and cared about how they were going and that was sort of with them on this journey to improve their lives I I think that you you can't beat that feeling the like the moments of connection and yeah knowing that you've done a thing a good thing yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm making a sort of a positive difference in the world with, with each day. And we need more of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is there any advice that you'd like to give to a young person who's considering either the like the research kind of career or the clinical career in the, the neuropsychologist kind of area? Is there any advice you'd like to give to them? I think um, 
I think going eyes wide open with what the requirements are. There is a, a lot of um, study that's involved with each pathway and each pathway has um, you know, different strengths and, and weaknesses about what, what doing that kind of work would be like. So I think knowing what's involved and, and really, I guess, committing to that before you get started um, because you really see that the people that um, shine are those that are really driven, um, are really confident that this is what they want to do. And I think that really helps um, to, to have a really great career. It's, it's not really great work if you're sort of half in, half out. Yeah, there'd be a lot of challenges you need to overcome and having that sort of like longer term vision and passion sounds really important. Yeah, that's put perfectly. Thank you. (laughs) Is there anything you wish the general public either knew about your job or about people with acquired brain injuries, like misconceptions that you'd really like to get squashed? Well, I guess the lighthearted one is that uh, when I tell people what I do, people often say, oh, does that mean you can read my mind? And they definitely don't teach you mental telepathy at university. <laughs> um, and if, I'm, if someone's a psychologist, it doesn't mean that they're analysing you or, you know, we're off the clock. So I guess that's, that's one thing about being a psychologist. But in terms of understanding of acquired brain injury, I think there's a lot the community still needs to learn about what an ABI means. I think that it's a very hidden or invisible disability. So for some people, they can have quite a severe brain injury, but there's no outward signs of that. Uh, A short conversation may not be enough to tell that somebody is having difficulty with, you know, understanding, comprehending what's going on or understanding nuance or abstract ideas or is just forgetting things. People can present quite, um, quite well. And so that can be great in some situations, but a bit of a double-edged sword. On the other hand, uh, not everyone with a brain injury is severely impaired and disabled. So some people uh, are quite high-functioning and but really might struggle with fatigue, which can be very debilitating, or even, you know, blurred vision, which can create challenges. Um, and, you know, some people might have difficulty sort of walking in a stable way um, and slur their speech and so in the public they can often get accused of being drunk and you know that that's you know very stigmatizing so I think you know with with disability being so common and affecting so many people in the world and and even in Australia I think there needs to be uh, yeah less judgment and and more acceptance of that um, people with disability um, can be just as fantastic contributors to society than than anyone else. It just might mean that for certain people they need uh, a little bit of extra consideration or a little extra time or um, things set up in a, in, a, in a more supportive way for them to to achieve their full potential as well. And leaping to conclusions doesn't help anybody. Exactly. Yeah. There's so many, um, you know, you see on social media or other places about judgment. So-and-so is using a a disabled parking spot and I could see they didn't have a disability. It's just not possible to see so many disabilities. Not everything is as obvious as a broken leg. So I think, yeah, people should, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt and um, yeah, not leap to conclusions as you don't know what's really going on for a person. 
And it sounds like remembering that acquired brain uh, acquired brain injury can be on a spectrum, which is honestly something I've embarrassingly never thought about myself. Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk in the media about concussion. Mm. And a concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury. It's just a different word we use for it. It's a socially acceptable one. <laughs> yeah, in some in some cases it is. And, um, yeah, you know, it, people can have really long-standing debilitating impairments from a concussion. It's much less common, but it can happen. And people can make really amazing recoveries with maybe some smaller outstanding problems from a severe brain injury. And the reverse is true too. So just because someone has a certain label or a certain diagnosis doesn't really dictate exactly what that person's life and ongoing abilities and impairments is going to look like. This is very good stuff. (laughs) Thanks. Did you want to talk at all about your podcast that you're working on? Sure. Well, um, as part of uh, the work I'm doing on positive behaviour support, we're in the process of recording some podcasts. Uh, The podcast is called Relentless Optimism. And in that we are interviewing people who have received the intervention with us, along with their therapists and their family members, to really talk in depth about what it's been like to um, take part in our project and um, their tips about how to use different components of the positive behaviour support approach. So we're still um, preparing that, but um, hopefully we'll be able to launch that and um, make sure to help your listeners stay um, in the loop about that if they're interested. Definitely. And if it's out by the time this episode's out, um, we'll include a link in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. Is there anything else we haven't touched on that you'd like to share? Oh, gosh, I could talk all day about brain injury rehab, so (laughs) don't get me started. Um, I think uh, if people are are interested in in learning more about this, there's like so many great organisations in Australia. Many of them are led by people with lived experience, so there's some great work going on um, there. So... um, Shout out to Brain Injury Australia. Shout out to the Genius Network led by Kayla Brixen and their great work. And, um, yeah, shout out to all the people that fund the work that we do in both the clinical and the uh, research spheres. Um, But also, most importantly, to the research team and the clinicians that I work with at Monash Epworth Rehabilitation Research Centre, part of the... um, Monash University Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health and also the amazing research um, participants and, and clients that, that generously donate their time and in helping us with learning more about brain injury and rehabilitation. That was so many people there. That was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you didn't give me a time limit, so I just went for it. And we'll make sure to get all the web addresses for the various institutes and organizations and things uh, so that if you are interested, you can read some more about it because, you know, there's clearly a lot of awesome people doing some really, really great work. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Dr. Kate. It's been absolutely fascinating. I've learned a lot. I've hoped you've had, uh, I hope you've had some fun too. Yeah, it's been great. I, you know, I, um, I love the opportunity to talk about what I do and I, I hope you and um, other listeners have found something interesting and maybe there's a few of you out there that might might think about becoming a neuropsychologist. 
think that'd be cool. I didn't even know that was a thing when I was at school. Yeah, well, if I hadn't had the that um, that information day, I, I never would have heard about it either. You're very lucky. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much. And um, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions. He gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats. And he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic. 